Hello, Cosmic Pizza Podcast, the show of all sorts that sorts all by serving up a slice of life. What is your order, please? Uh huh. I see. The special it is. We will be there to deliver ASAP. podcast special delivery hello and welcome to your special delivery from the cosmic pizza podcast i'm paul from the uk and with me today is dan from the uk and sean from canada and we are here to serve you a slice of life and today's slice is going to be a bit sort of a bit like the old desert island discs that you get on on radio 4 in the bbc it's going to be like 10 forwards uh, desert island discs that we used to do on there desert island trek we used to call it this is where we we take a, a number of things that we would like to take with us on a desert island if we were stranded on a desert island for, you know, for the rest of our lives what would you take and we are talking about discs we are talking about DVDs and Blu-rays those sort of discs but we're not going to talk about our favourite discs because that would be naff and boring and it would just be Star Trek Star Trek 1 Star Trek 2 Star Trek 3. Star Trek 4. 4. Not, not, not 5. five. Not, oh, God, not, no, definitely not 5. Not five. <gasps> Five's coming with me. Come hell or high water, that film's coming with me. I love it. That's the one that me and Sean would accidentally drop overboard as we were swimming ashore with all our discs. Although it, it, it does have the best line of any Star Trek movie, though. Which is? What does God need with a starship? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think I say row, row, row your boat. Which does actually come into a film that we're going to talk about later. Ooh, how about that for a segue? That was excellent. And these films are going to be picked by my good friend, Lee Tomlinson. Welcome to the Cosmic Pizza Podcast, Lee. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me, you guys. Excited. No problem. No problem at all. Now, for those of you who are diehard uh, Sean and myself uh, fans, in other words, Dan in the corner there... <laughs> You may remember that we used to do the Sci-Fi Waffle podcast, and on the Sci-Fi Waffle podcast, we I think a couple of times we had Lee on to talk about various yeah. stuff, and that was about four Indeed. years ago, I think, we, we worked it out. Yeah, we? we just worked it out. I thought it was 20 minutes, but it's four and a half years, you know, so that's, that's nice. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's what having a young girl will do to you, along with a young boy, isn't it? Well, yeah, they're not as young as I was 20 minutes ago, but yeah, <laughs> 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 yes, age has not touched touched as well, has it? I've lost up, I've lost my hair. You've you've gr- you've grown hair. How how can you have that beard? I mean, that's well, uh, yeah. It's, I've just moved bits around. <laughs> yeah, there you go, Sean. That's what you need to do. There you go, Dan. It's a good idea. Move, move bits around. That's it. Yeah, it's like that uh, that magnet game. You remember the iron filings where you could I'm move it around? To, to like the top. do a comb over with the hair coming out my ears. <laughs> Stops a bit short. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Uh, thanks for coming on, Lee. And you? you have picked uh, ten films that you own on DVD or Blu-ray, or mostly Blu-ray. I would have thought, knowing, knowing yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that you are an aficionado, aficionado, an aficionado of films. I think so. I enjoy them. You yeah. do. You've, got a, you've got the biggest collection of DVDs and Blu-rays that I know, other than Snips movies that you know, rent them out every week. Well, to be fair, I, I go to Snips a lot more now because the amount of time you get to watch stuff more than once with two small children and a penny, you might as well just <laughs> give them a quid in Snips as opposed to invest. But yeah, I know what you mean. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. The um, So, the, the list that you've got, we uh, I won't read it out in one go. We'll go through them one by one. and We'll like you to tell us why it's uh, why th- this has made your top ten list. Why you think it's uh, it's th- you know a, a good film, maybe your favourite scenes, your favourite uh, dialogue. With, you know, just just tell us why you like them. Um, and there's a good there's a good mix here. It's not all there's a couple in there that you would expect to be on pretty much everybody's list or you know a lot of people's lists. But there's a few here that are very interesting. Um, and I think I think there's only a couple I haven't seen. So. Or if I haven't seen, I haven't seen. Don't ask me guess what they. <laughs> we'll go. We'll we'll go through it and see what we think. Okay, so we'll start off with the first one I haven't seen. 
<laughs> Which is Back to the Future 2. You haven't seen Back to the Future 2? Have no. you seen 3? No. Have you seen the first one? I've seen, I've seen the first one once. Didn't what, think uh, much of it and never uh, bothered watching usual it. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> I'm... I'm flabbergasted I, I would have thought that would be that like... well, I, I don't know I don't know what it was I mean it came out when was it come out 1985 89 89 for the sequel oh, two, 80, 89 I beg your pardon for the sequel and and since you, you since you don't know your trivia I do have a piece of trivia or two for most of these films Paul <gasps> wow okay there's a prepared man well, of course you could lie to Paul he wouldn't know anywhere about it that is cool. <laughs> Okay, well, before we get into the trivia, Lee, tell us why this is in your top ten. Okay, let me just start by saying it's not as good as Back to the Future, but for me, it's one seamless film, and this is the middle chunk. And what I love about the the second one is, first of all, in the second one, they start off in going to 2015, and it wasn't just your usual kind of Blade Runner dystopian bleak metal thunder and lightning vision of the future it was a nice happy uplifting vision of the future with lots of pop culture references lots of self-referential robert zemeckis references and loads of fun and yeah it's just five years later is a bit bleak but 2015 was extremely exciting and vibrant and happy which was good fun and the other thing I liked about it was that uh, for anyone who doesn't know the timeline uh, in part two, they go to the future to sort out a problem. Whilst they're there, they get an artifact from the future, way back to the past, messing up their present. And to fix that present, they have to go further back into the past, into 1955. And my favourite thing about that movie, apart from the future, was... They've done it since in movies. They've done it in The Avengers quite recently, but what they did in part two was they went back to scenes from Back to the Future but filmed them again from a different perspective. So you saw gubbins going on that you'd seen in Back to the Future, but at the same time you'd be the other side of a door or below the car window while Marty avoids himself, etc., etc. because you have the uh, problem where not only have you gone back into the past, you've already been there once yourself, so you've got to avoid yourself, otherwise you cause massive paradoxes, that kind of problem. You'd have frames of reference if you'd seen. <laughs> <laughs> you've, got, you've got me thinking. I should. I should watch these. I mean, I have seen you the first one. My, the three of them are fantastic. Yeah. What I what I do know, Lee, is just just over your left shoulder on the wall. Oh yes, yes, yes. Could show the guys here because I know no, this yes. is a really good listening podcast. But if, if they can, if you can show them. Oh yeah, good. He's picking. Yeah, it. my friends. For my fortieth birthday, we went to Comic Con. In London, which was 2015, so it was the, uh, the year itself, and they arranged for me to have my photo taken with uh, five o'clock, ah, and I got another. Um, um, I can, I can see it. The old uh, sepia one from uh, from the. Yeah, that was film. the only yeah. one we couldn't actually find the print off ah, at the comic shop, so that was fun. But yeah, it was nice. He was uh, he was really nice for the 2.4 seconds I met him before he pushed me away. It was really good fun. So yeah, so I mean, it's fair to say that you're a, a big fan of the uh, of the, the whole franchise, really. I mean, yeah, I love it. Yeah, the um, right from the uh, the ride. That's a massive loss to Universal because they kept the engine and turned it into the Simpsons, which is a lovely ride, but it's not as good as the. Uh... The Simpsons is an entire waste of space. Is that the one in Florida? Yeah, but it, oh. it uses the same amphitheatre setup and projection as the Back to the Future ride did, but oh. it's not a patch on it. The whole ride is on the Blu-ray box set, so they've, they've kept all the ride. It's about 25 minutes in total, but obviously you haven't got the, you've even got the ride itself. All the screens are there, the whole queuing system, so you can actually revisit it. And if you want to get the full experience, you just throw yourself off the couch occasionally while you're watching it. It's good fun. <laughs> So, Sean, what uh, what trivia have you got uh, for, for this then? Oh, it's quite it's, it's quite exciting. Uh, it was the third highest grossing film of 1989, uh, but it started out with very mixed reviews at first, and it's now considered one of the best sequels of all time. I went to see Back to the Future at the uh, Liverpool Phil with the live score, and I've only done that once, and the live score performances are really good. And from the first note where they put the flash the date up, 
I just looked down because I was right at the front, got a cracking view of the screen and a cracking view of the uh, conductor, and I just thought, you've got a lot of work to do after this. And uh, <laughs> you didn't stop for the next uh, 90 minutes. I don't, have you guys ever been to a live scored movie? I have not, no. 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 It's no, good fun because no. if you know the movie inside out and you know the score inside out, what you can do is you can focus on the screen and then you can focus on the pit and you know what's coming next. You know how it should sound. And if they get it right, it's exactly the same. It's not like when you go to, say, a Maiden gig or whatever, you think, oh, they're going to embellish a bit or they're going to play around with the solo. It needs to be note exact or it doesn't work. And there was no difference. Obviously, it was a lovely experience because it was live. But in terms of the rendition, it was absolutely perfect. So uh, I recommend that to anybody if we ever get to do that kind of thing ever again, which I'm sure we will. Yeah, you mentioned Lee with um, with the sort of the extras, the DVD extras that came with that particular one. Is that sort of your deciding criteria for all the movies we're going to dis- uh, discuss today? Does it have to specifically be that DVD that you have? Uh, I was wondering if I was wondering if these sort of movie choices are informed by some of the extra content that you would get with it. Oh no, there absolutely not. No, there is uh, invariably all the films on that list I've got on Blu-ray. There is a cracking bunch of extras for all of them, but if they just came. Vanilla, I'd still, uh, I'd still. If the only way to watch them was on DVD or, uh, yeah, it would be these days. But yeah, it, I'd get them sans extras because they're cracking pieces of cinema that I love. I mean, usually, some terrible drudge gets some really good extras, which outweigh how good the movie was. But equally, you get, you used to get conned by an absolute classic, getting completely overlooked and just released by one. <laughs> that was all right because you don't. At the end of the day, you don't really buy it. Blu-ray for the extras. If they're a good package, it's great because you enhance the experience. But no, if all these came out just as was, I'd still have snapped them up, and they probably would have still made. They would have made the list. So let's move on to 1983 with uh, National Lampoon's Vacation. So uh, with old good old Chevy Chase and uh, Beverly D'Angelo. Uh, so why has this made your top ten then? What does this mean by top ten? Uh, first of all, a sidebar is um, comedy heroes, heroes of any form. A bit of a stretch of a word, but like favourite actors and actresses. What you really want is the likes of Bill Murray. You meet him and you think, yeah, you're the same. Chevy Chase invariably played these really nice, amiable, family man type figures. And he, he's an absolute <laughs> in real life. <laughs> But uh, initially it was a bit disappointing for me. But I, and then I thought, you know, I'm not paying to sit and spend time at a bar with Chevy Chase. If I'm fooled by what he does for a living, which I haven't been for a long time because he picked terrible projects about community, which was awesome, then fair play. And if I'm fooled by this and I'm along for the ride, you've done your job. And, you know, I like to your pile of dollars. I mean, he, his ego was such that he jumped ship on the very first, after the very first season of Saturday Night Live in 75. And he's thought, right, I'm made now. And he made a couple of films between 76 and 1980, and they were garbage. Bill Murray jumped in on season two, he took his place, and went, yeah, I'll, I'll stand back here and I'll wait and see what happens. And uh, what happened was uh, Bill Murray bided his time till about 1980. They were both in Caddyshack together. But before that, in season two, I think it was, when Bill Murray was becoming the biggest star on SNL at the time, Chevy Chase came back and uh, guest hosted, and just before they stepped on for a link, Bill sauntered up to him and went, yeah, it's not going too well, is it, Chevy? And they had uh, a bit of a fist fight just before the uh, the first link, which, uh, depending on who you talk to and what you read, different members of the cast won. But, uh, but yeah, this is a long-winded way I said he thought he'd bust Hollywood wide open because he was a funny, he was funny on Saturday Night Live he thought he was much better than the sum of the parts which at that point he just wasn't, I mean, and that kind of sums up Chevy Chase, he plays very funny characters, he is an absolute master of pratfalls he can he can do a fall and a drop and a fumble like uh, he's up there with um, Peter Sellers or any of those you know, slapstick comics, but he, he can deliver a scathing, sarcastic line whilst dropping things seven times and landing almost on his feet. So I, uh, I often say to uh, people, if, if uh, 
my, my parenting style would be uh, like 50% Clark Griswold with a little bit of, uh, I don't know, a bit of Peter Griffin and Homer Simpson thrown in, which usually gets people <laughs> scowling at me. But uh, I don't know, Paul, have you seen this one? Have you seen Vacation? Uh, I know you don't like to have you much Pete. So I've probably skeered through that one as well. I, I, th- I think I have seen Vacation uh, many years ago because obviously I just, I love the, um, the, the, the scene of them in the car where they're driving along and then, you know, they've, obviously the kids in the back have fallen asleep and then the, the camera pans around and his wife's yeah. fallen asleep and it pans around and he's asleep. <laughs> and then actually the oh, car's gone bed, all over the place and driving you know, through uh, filling stations and then screeches to a halt right in front of the uh, the, the motel. He says, we're here! So yeah, I have I have seen I think I have seen it, but it must be many years ago, probably when it first came out. Um, <laughs> exactly, yeah. I thought um, European Vacation was better, and I've seen that quite a few times. Uh, yeah. But that's just my opinion. So what? Um, so 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 what? So uh, other than the main man, what uh, what makes this film you know, uh, as good as it is? Well, for me, as well as him being funny, it's Harold Ramis. Bless him. He was not just a, a cracking writer and actor. He was an awesome director. I mean, he uh, he busted Chevy out with Caddyshack a couple of years prior in 1980, and he um, he pretty much wrote this with Chevy in mind and uh, convinced him to come on board. And he was just great. I mean, it was one of his. Um, you know, I watched a, an extra on this. Coming back to your earlier point about extras on on Blu-rays and such, it's something I hadn't even clocked. Which was uh, he comes across as Clark as this big lovable family man who do anything for his wife and kids. But um, what is funny is because he's the biggest bumbling buffoon idiot on the planet, but he's got the most complicated job in the history of food science. Where he comes up with all these uh, food additives and preservatives, and he's spitting out words you couldn't even pronounce. But he's always at work, and he, tr- he he makes up for his lack of appearance. I mean, there's a running joke in all four movies where he uh, keeps getting the kids' names wrong. And uh, in, in all four of the movies, they recast the kids because it doesn't matter. And uh, in in, the, in Vegas Vacation, in the fourth, he said, God, these kids have grown up so much, I don't even recognise them anymore. <laughs> it ties in with that fact pretty well. But what Ramis was saying was, he's not a great dad. He's trying to fit a year's worth of misdefection into two weeks and just turns into this manic, self-centred idiot who's just trying to make up for his failings, which I can relate to, and I think is really funny. In, into, into how many weeks? Two weeks. Excuse me? Two weeks. Two weeks! It's a running gag. Love a running gag. One of them turns up later on the list. I'll leave that to you guys to discover. So, Dan, what do you think of... Have you seen the vacation... It's it's been a very long time since I've seen Vacation, uh, Europe, European Vacation, and obviously the the Christmas Holiday, um, the movie. Uh, just it, the image of him putting all those lights on the on the the ceiling, uh, and and pretty much everywhere else in the house. Uh, that is is a running gag in our family as well. You just you watch that film and you see the pratfalls and you see the 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 particular skill he has in being able to fall over at the right moment. Exactly. The facial expressions, everything is so good. Um, personally, as a, as a Chevy chase, um, you know, if, if I had to pick a movie that I would, um, I I like with him in it, um, it's, uh, three amigos. And I, I love the pratfalls he does in there. So you can see that skill in all the different movies that he does. Not, not just the, the, the lampoons. Um, but I, I love it. Sure. It's a great choice. Great choice for this list. It's it, like, like Dan, it's been years, years and years since I've seen it. Uh, it, I think it was required viewing as a kid growing up. Uh, it was on TV all the time. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen European vacation. Mm. I may have, but I don't have any recollections of it. And I'm so tired of the Christmas vacation movie, I can never watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Christmas tradition in our house, as many others. We haven't missed a year since about 1992. Yeah, <laughs> yeah whether they like it or not. Well, yeah. <laughs> Back in the year 2000, some place called Total Film uh, ranked 
National Lampoon's Vacation as the 46th best comedy of all time. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Very slim. Okay, let's uh, let's move on. Now this is this is a big film. Mm-hmm. Na- na- 1974. Let me run through the list of, of actors and see if people out there can guess what film this it's, is. It's huge. It's, it's huge. huge. It's, not, it's, not a, Massive. it's not as big as another one we're coming to later. But anyway, this is big. Steve McQueen. Paul Newman. Well, okay, that narrows it down to a couple. William Holden. Faye Dunaway. Fred Astaire. Susan Blakely. Richard Chamberlain. Jennifer Jones. O.J. Simpson, which was a surprise. I didn't realise he'd been in it. Robert Vaughan and Robert Wagner. Just to mention a few. It is, of course, The Towering Inferno from 1974. Wow. <laughs> That's a big, Lovely. big cast for that uh, for that time. Why this Why this one? I mean, there's, there's loads of disaster movies out there. You could pick a number of aeroplane films, uh, Titanic, or any of these. But why yeah. this particular one? Well, for me, Irwin Allen in the 70s, they were synonymous. He made some excellent ones, and he also made The Swarm, and things like that, so... Just everything came together. It, it, it came out the same year as Earthquake, which was nuts to think, you know. And uh, but that that was superb as well. But this the Tony Inferno was just um, I don't know. It was just a combination. It was first of all, it was two books, and it was the first time ever that two major studios, because they were both wrangling for the rights. It was so big that no studio they couldn't win it. So they were right and throw our hands in the ring, and they all got together, and it just it just worked. I mean. You think it's all practical effect? It's all ludicrous, and um, but it, it just works. You get on board. You just think, yeah, I know. It's like watching uh, the the build up for these things is always a bit of fun for me. Uh, how things just crumble, and the movie's like two and a half hours long. So the first hour is just, oh, that's not going to go well. And lo, lo and behold, um, they've had better days than than this. And um, yeah, it just. Just everything about it. I love the score. The score is—it's just so busy. I've been—I've uh, been listening to it over my earphones while I've been working from home just this week, just because. And it's just so big and busy and brassy and overblown, like many of the seventies um, um, disaster movies were. But this one in particular, it was just everything. It was John Williams, but you can hear influences of ET and bits and everything going on. But it just never stops. It never lets up. And yeah, it's it's just lovely and and chaotic and crazy and expensive, and uh, but it just worked. I mean, you you don't go to the cinema to relax in seventy. You're lucky if you get out in the place hasn't fallen down in your face. Good fun. So I, I've got, I mean, I've got a, a, a couple of bits of trivia. One off the top of my head says that because it was the two studios filming and because the two actors belonged to the two different studios, yeah, um, the contract was very very. Um, Hard to hard to get together, should we say, because mm-hmm. what they demanded and what was written into both contracts is they must have the same amount of lines. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> right and write that. As yeah. without cutting them, you know, you can't cut them down to, to, to get them the right same. They had to have the same amount of lines on screen. Otherwise we're taking the balls in, huh? Yes. Mm. <laughs> um and another thing was during I'm reading this off IMDB, so it's I've not done any any other uh, research into this and the one of the it's there's a massive amount of, of trivia for this, but this is a good one. Is during the film, an actual fire broke out on one of the sets. And uh, Steve uh, McQueen found himself briefly helping a, a real fireman put it out. One of the firemen, not recognising McQueen, said to the actor, my wife isn't going to believe this, to which McQueen replied, neither is mine. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds as though it was a very... Um, well, you die. Oh, I was just about to say you're playing with fire. Mm. Yeah, okay, well done. You don't have to say that. You know that. Because apparently, um, I did mention Faye Dunaway in this tonight. Yeah, Faye Dunaway um, mm. was often late to the set or didn't appear at all. And this made some of the scenes impossible to film and caused other actors such as William Holden and Jennifer Jones to become quite upset. Holden, Holden reportedly shoved Dunaway, Dunaway against a wall one day and threatened her. For the next month, she had a perfect attendance record. <laughs> <laughs> Don't wind up William Holden. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, and you know, it's 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 what it's a film from the early seventies, and, and like you mentioned, Earthquake there, and I said before, airplane movies as well, Titanic. There was all of these disaster films coming out around that time in the seventies. I mean, good grief, guys! Side an adventure. Yeah, that's right. 
I've got a fun little bit of nonsense about it. You know, uh, the Maureen McGovern is the big songstress who did all the big, you know, numbers for these uh, for these studio pieces. And only by chance, I found out that in Airplane, she's the uh, the singing nun that bashes them all with the guitar. The <laughs> not only was that funny because it was taking the mick out of uh, Linda Blair and one of the airport movies, but yeah, they got the Queen of the Disaster movie song sat in the middle of Airplane with no credit, just bashing out this terrible song and making the poor little kid wish she was dead, you know. So. <laughs> oh, why isn't that film in your top ten? Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, and again, you, you, mentioned, you actually you sent me a message actually and said uh, the music for The Towering Inferno was, was sort of almost like an inspiration and a nod to, well, the aeroplane did it the way around and the aeroplane was like a nod to it. Because Even it, busier. Yeah. yeah, it was a similar sort of feel to it and a similar sort of mm. sound. But no, this this particular movie though, the the Inferno, this was every sort of bank holiday, Monday, Sunday viewing. Like it was always on one of the channels at some point, and it was always there in the background. It was again, it's it's that thing your family always talks about. Oh, Taron Inferno, Poseidon Adventure. You know, do you name those disaster movies? And then when you think that they tried to sort of redo it with was it Skyscraper with The Rock a couple of years ago, and. And it was just, they, they tried all the tropes, you know, he has to climb outside the building on the outside and all this sort of thing. But because they came so focused on the danger and the CGI of the, you know, blowing a building up, not, not the drama, like you mentioned, the whole hour, the first hour is just solidifying the characters first. And really, you've only got the disaster for the last part of the film. Um, yeah, you, you miss that magic, the magic that Inferno and all of the disaster films it had just, just had. We will move on to uh, number four on the list, which is uh, 1984, Ghostbusters, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Rick Moranis, and Sigourney Weaver. So uh, this is pretty much going to be on quite a few people's lists, I would have thought. Yes, um, I, I I have seen it, um, maybe a couple of times, but not a big fan. It's, it's, a, it's a good film, there's nothing wrong with it, it's just that I'm not into them sort of ghosty film type things, so it's not my... I'm more sci-fi rather than that sort of thing. But so, mm-hmm. why do you love it so much then? Because primarily, like uh, like I said about um, Ramis before and uh, Bill Murray to a lesser degree, it's yeah, it's framed as a ghost story, but it's uh, well, it's not. It's a, it's a going into business and uh, what have you story. But the the driving force is these four guys, well, three guys primarily, who are just funny people. Who uh, Dan Aykroyd is? He's one of the most selfless writers ever. Who uh, he came up with the characters. He, he came up with them for uh, Belushi, and um, Belushi didn't do so well by uh, '82. So um, he reframed it a bit and rewrote it for for Bill Murray. But um, he gave, by his own admission and theirs, he gave all the funny lines to. Uh, the people he knew could pull them off better. I mean, he wrote the thing with Harold Ramis, top to bottom, revised it, lost it, and did it again. And even then, his character stands. He was the he was the uh, he was the lovable heart of the whole writing process and the movie. But he gave the funny stuff to uh, to Bill Murray, Harold Ramis, and, and the likes. So yeah, it's uh, it's a selfless, beautiful piece of writing where the uh, the good stuff's given to the people who deliver it the best, which is what a good writer does. The egocentric one fails out miserably a lot of the time. It's just and it's really funny, which is uh, which is key. It's not it has jump scares. It's not a scary movie. It's a damned funny, scathing, sarcastic, nasty, everyone's a bit of a sod and kind of out for themselves kind of movie, which sits well with me. You know? so. Yeah, one, one, the, the only bit of trivia, well, not the only bit of trivia, there's loads of trivia, of course, but the first one I see here, it says almost none of the scenes were filmed as scripted, as most had at least one ad-lib. Most film <laughs> Murray's lines are ad-libs. Yeah. <laughs> so you, can, you can write a script, but it doesn't mean anything, does it, if somebody's not going to go off script? No. It, it's a guideline at best. <laughs> yeah, that's what, maybe that's what he sees all of his films as. Yeah. Well, the script art is just a guideline. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love the fact that Murray hasn't got an agent. He, um, if, if he likes something, he'll get back to you. And if you've got in touch with him, he's already interested because you've made the effort to find out how the hell to get in touch with him in the first place. Which is, 
he's Hollywood's hermit and he hates lots of people, which is kind of Venkman, but in real life, I kind of like that too. It's uh, Plus, only a character like Venkman was that cocksure that he could dress like a high school English teacher with elbow patches and a check shirt and a tweed jacket and still exude that amount of sex for being a sergeant. You know, it's, it's just perfect, really. Um, yeah, there's, there's a, a beautiful scene, I don't know if anyone's familiar with it or not, there's a, there's a scene by the fa- by a fountain where uh, Bankman's out to pull Dana Barrett and he, she's already spending her time with this uh, stiff, as he called a musician from the orchestra, and she's, he's trying to set up a second date and Bankman just says, well, see you Thursday from the outskirts, and, and uh, there's a bit where he... To the left of this fountain is a, is a guy pirouetting on roller skates because it was 80s New York and that's what happened. But to the right, Venkman mirrors these moves almost to, to a T. But for years, that wasn't even in frame. It was only when things got released on widescreen, on, on video initially, that this joke even came to light. He put all that work into it. It was like sarcastic thoughtful, interpreted dance, and it just got lost because it wasn't even on bloody screen. So that was a nice little um, nice little gem for future audiences to discover, you know. But just everything about it, it's, it, it's just lovely, and, uh, you know, there's a line in it. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's the mayor towards the end, says the thing, you know, being miserable and treating everybody else like dirt is every New Yorker's God-given right. Something like that. I mean, I've been in New York and I love them, but it, it was apparent around some corners. You know, that, uh, it just leads... I mean, New York is as big a character in this film as anything else that happens, really. I mean... But isn't that the isn't that the case with a lot of I mean there's a couple of films on your on your choices here where that is the case and there's one a bit later on we'll talk about that it's certainly the case is a lot of American films the city is a character in itself you, you've absolutely it, yeah? Yeah. yeah yeah absolutely I mean they I'm talking briefly about Ghostbusters too it's it's not a bad movie it's it's the same movie instead of a hundred foot marshmallow man attacking the city you've got a Statue of Liberty attacking the city differently to different ends it, it's the right. But, I mean, Bill, Bill Murray hates it because Bill Murray, they had this script, they had these ideas where it went in a slightly different direction and he was, he was able to fly a bit more with darker things and the whole thing was just curtailed by the studio and what got put out. And it's apparent enough when you watch it. You can see it's been, it's all right. You can see it's been snipped up and changed from Reitman's vision and Ackroyd's vision and as a result being as candid as he never is Bill Murray has many interviews where he just says yeah that's rubbish because it's not what we did it wasn't even what we made what we made was alright he said so he's not even that keen on the finished product which was a lot better than what got put out there and I, I struggle to like a film I like it but I struggle to really invest in a film which should have been much better and even the stars Except Dan Aykroyd, who's still... He's been trying to make Ghostbusters Afterlife since about 1993, bless him. And he finally cracked it, and then some worldwide pandemic stepped on his toes. We were going to wait another year, but I suppose since you've waited since 1989, what difference does it get another year make, you know? It's, uh, and in terms of the uh, recent uh, reboot, remake thing, it's uh, it got a lot of undue hatred. It's not very good, I think. But it's not because the, the the biggest misconception was it, it got bashed because a you're ruining my childhood said a lot of people you're not you're just remembering it from when you were nine and now you're watching it when you're 35 so it's a different movie and they they they, uh, they bashed the female co- the stars and they're all really funny women in and of themselves but there wasn't a lot of chemistry there and the script wasn't particularly funny when the funniest character in a Ghostbusters movie is the male Janine equivalent you're doing something wrong. It's, um, and he was, he was really funny. I mean, uh, they, um, help me out, he plays Thor. Chris Hemsworth. Thank you very much. Uh, Hemsworth, he played the, uh, the secretary figure, and at one point, this wasn't even in the script, he had these big fake glasses on, uh, as part of his character. Uh, you guys seen the remake? Yep. What I haven't think? seen, I haven't seen the film, but I have seen clips of, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're fine if you never watch it, but there's, there's one um, there's one bit in it where Kevin, the receptionist, he puts these glasses on, and he gets something in his eye, and he's just, there's no glass in the glasses, and he just, he just wipes his eye, and uh, I think it was 
I can't remember, I can't remember which one it was. She just turned to him and said, uh, Kevin, are there uh, no, no glass in there? No, I just like the way they look. Uh, <laughs> he's really stupid. He's really lovely. He's really dumb. But he's really funny. And if all the characters had been well written, as well written as well performed as Kevin, the receptionist, whose who's, uh, dog was called Mike Hat, which is lovely. <laughs> My dog's called Mike Hat. And he just said, yeah, you couldn't see why that was funny or even out of place, really. But, um, but that for me, that, that's the highlight of Ghostbusters 2016. That and the fact that you could do a bingo call of the cameos from the original movie. And every time you saw one, you just thought, oh, this isn't the first movie. This isn't as good. Stop it. And, but I've got to say, the amount of a hate, any movie that gets hatred and death threats, actual death threats for somebody who's in it, you're doing something wrong there if you're, uh, <laughs> you're putting that forward. I mean, yes, it wasn't a very good movie. It wasn't the worst movie ever made. It wasn't very good. It wasn't very funny. But it's not worth threatening the life of Leslie Jones over. I mean, come on, you know. Yeah. Don't go and see it. That's yes, all right. Exactly. Don't yeah. threaten their life. You know, just don't watch it. You yeah, know? they're not taking off. They're not getting rid of the old one. <laughs> no, exactly. That's it. Yeah, the people who are saying, you know, they're, 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 you've tarnished my memories. Well, watch the first one and remind yourself of your memories. You know? it's <laughs> right. Like, exactly. You can do that. You know? <laughs> so I never quite got that level of hatred, but it's not very good. I'm excited for Afterlife because whenever it turns up, because it is the first actual continuation of um, of the first story. And I imagine if Ghostbusters 16 had been better, full stop, and or better received, that may well... It, it set up its own little sequel idea. There was a post-credits thing, which didn't make any sense because uh, the whole way through they made it very clear that it exists in a universe separate to the original movie. And the very end, Leslie, uh, one, of the, one of them says, uh, they're going through the records, and she says, what's Zool? And it pans to black. And they wouldn't know about Zool because it exists in a different universe. It doesn't exist where they are. So even if that was a sequel jump-off point, it made no sense, which is... So, um, Sean, did you say you've seen seen this film? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I tell you, are a fan. So. Nope, I don't like any of the Ghostbusters movies. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. It's it's an unpopular opinion because everybody seems to love them. But yeah, uh, nope, I would I would throw those out along with uh, Spaceballs. Actually, <laughs> I, oh, I can't stand that either. Upset all of us now. Don't we? <laughs> that's, that's it. It's not it's, like I said, unpopular opinion, but <laughs> equal opportunity defender. I like that. That's good. Um, <laughs> what do you like about it? I don't remember. I just, I just don't like it. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I haven't seen it enough to remember why. <laughs> That's fair play. How old were you when it came out? Uh, when did it come out? Eighty four. I was, I was eight. Yeah, I was, um, I was eight or nine. So I didn't see it at the time. I, was, I caught it late. I just. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably yeah. what it was. I mean, it, it probably um, did appeal to the younger audience because I was 19. I mean, that really at the time I was more into action films and mm. uh, mid-80s was all Terminator and you know, all these type of things. So I bet you still went to see Police Academy, didn't you? I saw the first one. Yeah, same uh, year. <laughs> didn't really bother with any of the others, I don't think. Yeah, but there was a, you know, Steve Gutenberg. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe maybe that's what it is. You know, uh, the, the eighty-four movie certainly is is uh, for a younger audience. But then the modern day one, the, there might be some modern day people who have not seen the original that say, "Hey, this is actually quite a good film because it's you know, it's three women being Ghostbusters, blah blah." You know, and it attracts them to that. And they, but they haven't got that baggage from the from the watching no. the original. And if they did watch the original, it, like if there were like uh, my my lads now who are in the twenty, eighteen and twenty. I mean, the, the films nowadays are all you know fast-paced action, 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 and, and mm. you know as we'll come to the next one in a minute, which is a lot slower. But you know, films from the old from from that era were really slow-paced, and kids these days can't watch them because they're just too slow and they drag mm. and they want faster-paced stuff. So, yeah, the new one might might suit a, a newer audience, but I think it was it was hampered by too many people remembering the old one and and you know taking that sort of uh, their thoughts of that into the film as they went to watch it. Of course, the biggest the biggest failing of the new version though would be that it didn't have Rick Moranis. Well, yeah, mm. yeah. It's, um, 
that that for me uh, as a child seeing that character and as opposed to the ghostbusters which of course i loved but seeing rick moranis this you know this this buffoon like being kicked around by life and then all of Got this the other stuff exactly <laughs> yeah. And you know he's uh, the whole scene where he's talking to all of his clients and he's he's throwing this party. And, uh, he just hears a growling from where he left all the coats. He says, "All right, who brought the dog?" It's just that moment. Um, he's just so pitiful as a character. He's so believable as a character. I identified with that character. Oh, <laughs> That's the greatest strength of the original Ghostbusters is mm. that these are four, eventually four, believable guys who are down on their luck. They they know how to do a job well, but no one seems to sort of give them the chance to really do it. Mm. And it's all of the successive failures that eventually lead up to them being taken away from the problem. And then they realize, actually, we do need the Ghostbusters. Mm. And, you know, it's a catharsis at the end where everyone's chanting Ghostbusters and, you know, there's marshmallow everywhere and it's all fun. And, you know, as far as I'm aware, because I haven't seen the movie, that wasn't there in Ghostbusters because it was four characters all trying to be the Bill Murray character for yeah. the first one. Yeah. As opposed concept. to having four identities and, and so forth. Yeah. Um, but I was a child. I was one when the film came out, but oh. I went back to it. I know, I know. <laughs> but I, you know, I love the real Ghostbusters cartoon, uh, Ghostbusters 2, everything. I had the annuals, the figures, the everything. I was all about the Ghostbusters. So this film appealed to me as a child and still appeals to my kids now. They love the whole library scene at the, you know, when they, they get told to shh and then she suddenly jumps out of them. Um, it still works, but you, yeah, I think Paul's right. It, it, there are some kids who just won't identify it. It's a bit yeah. too slow. You, you mentioned the, the Marshmallow Man. What My favourite thing about the Marshmallow Man scene was at the end when he's been obliterated and he just gets ringed down on Walter Peck and the rest of the city. Ackroyd's character, everybody's character, is caked from head to toe in this gunk. And it pans to Venkman, he's got the littlest bit of fluff in his hair. <laughs> just missed him completely. I don't know whether that was written into Bill Murray's contract or I just thought it was funny, but it's nothing on him at all. That's funny. Okay, so let's move on. So 1958, James Stewart, Kim Novak, Vertigo. This is um, a classic. It, it, it's absolute classic. Now, I think, um, Lee, me and you saw this recently, I would say recently, like two years ago maybe, yeah, it was one of the film clubs. The film, yeah, it was, I lobbied it as my pick, I think, a, yeah. a while back. And I yeah. think that was the first time I'd watched it because it was a, one of those classic films that I'd never saw you know, when I was younger. Just that you know, passed on, you by. It just, yeah, it just, it was, it was too old. It was a too old a film for me when I was started sort of getting you know, into films. It was yeah. uh, probably too slow paced by the time I got round to it. And then it, it just one of those things that I never really thought about watching. But then. So glad that you uh, that you pulled it out of the hat and said, "Right, we're going to watch this one today." Uh, right. It's an amazing film, isn't it? Yeah, it's lovely. It's um, Hitchcock. Never. <laughs> never. I've never seen it. I'm sorry. Never seen it. It's a typical Hitchcock film. It's perfect in every way, in the sense that it's nothing happens really that much. For pretty much all of the film, until it does, until yeah. it does, and then right at you know at the end, everything just falls into place, and you go, "Oh my goodness!" You know, you, yeah, I don't want to say too much about no, the end no. now, but uh, <laughs> oh no, no, that's all right. Spoiler, spoiler away, spoiler away. That's oh, I, okay. I probably will. I'll just feel badly about it for a couple of seconds, and I'll get over. It. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's just a beautiful thing, and James Stewart, he's just he was superbly good I mean even in going back to what we talked about before even I think it was airport 77 I think it was where the thing crashed out of the sky ended up at the bottom of the ocean there's Jimmy Stewart I can't call him Jimmy Stewart that's disrespectful there's James Stewart in 1977 in this by then quite lesser sequel to the airport movies and he stole the show again he was just in his heyday in the, in the Hitchcock era and the rest of it, he was just masterful. And he, um, what was beautiful about Vertigo is um, Hitch took him, his nice guy persona from the likes of Wonderful Life and Harvey and such. And um, in actual fact, 
Hitchcock, um, Hitchcock, um, Jimmy Stewart's character, he was a bit of a manipulative, conniving sod, really. He was, um, this didn't become apparent initially, but, um, when he, uh, he got designs on, uh, you know, Kim, Kim Novak's character, and he, he really did start to play upon her fears and affections to, to his own end. I mean, he's, he's this, he's this cop who, uh, at the beginning, he's chasing down a suspect, and he, um, Vertigo gets the better of him, and then um, events occur, and he, he's troubled with this crippling vertigo throughout throughout the movie. And it, it's just it doesn't really it, it plays a part. It plays a part of the movie. It's used occasionally, but it's not as big a device as you might think in terms of the movie itself. It's it's more the play between uh, Jimmy Stewart's character and, and Kim Novak. But one of this, one of what they did do, Hitch actually invented the the, the dolly pull away shot. He, he came up with this shot. I think, I think it was in there was a scene in a bell tower and a call of others where Jimmy Stewart would look over the edge and the camera would use gets used quite a lot now. He pulls back and dives forward at the same time, so it is disorientating. It had never been done in '58. Uh, that was just Hitchcock. Not only was he a, a masterful writer and a, a great director, he was innovative like nobody's business. I mean, it, we, it doesn't have been done. It needs to be done. How can we do it? Type thing. And, uh, yeah, it was. What I love about the movie was um, the the character, the, the Jimmy Stewart character, was just so nasty. He starts off quite nice, quite amiable, and slowly evolves into this quite mean-spirited, quite conniving, self-serving creature. It, it ends not so well for uh, many concerned, really, but you feel a lot less sorry for him than you thought you would do when it all started. I just I just love it. I mean, Hitchcock didn't make a bad movie. He just made slightly less well-received, slightly less popular movies. He made what he wanted to make and invariably just nailed it every time. He was... A, legendary guy but this for me this and uh, Rear Window are my favourite I mean without Psycho there'd be no slasher movies that you could go on I mean any any trope you picked up on he kind of wrote the playbook which has been borrowed from quite rightly ad infinitum but uh, with Vertigo he just he messed with you on many many levels there was the uh, suspense of the case the police chase there was the suspense of the actual physicality of the heights and there was the suspense of how these characters evolved into quite mild-mannered and quite meek in some cases to people you'd not really want to cross and that's great because he took every single trope of this movie and bothered you with it which is kind of what you want out of a Hitchcock movie yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's, it's, a, it's an amazing film. It's, it's, like I say, it's, nowadays people say, "Oh, it's a bit slow paced" or whatever, but it but it's just gripping. Mm. It, it's every every scene has you know has meaning and and, and depth, and you, you look at it thinking, "Oh, I, you don't get bored." You know, even though it's, no. it, it's a slow paced film, it, 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 you you go on this ride, and you get to the end of the film and think, "Wow!" You know, just yeah. like it's just why, why don't they make films like this now? It's everything's far too. <laughs> Quick and, and boom, 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 boom. Let's go action, 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 action all the well, time. They, they kind of do, but they never make the money, so they never get the no. screens. So they get released briefly, and they get put out on really good Blu-ray editions. And you have to discover them. They're not kind of banner movies anymore. They're out there, but they, you feel more happy when you discover them. They're not there on a plate anymore. So, Sean, have you have you seen this film at all? Or? Yeah, uh, twenty odd years ago, uh, be, in the summer between, I think. Th- third year and fourth year university i took a fluff course women in cinema and this was uh, one of the ones that they were uh, they were playing and we were studying and i was like hmm this, this sounds like it's going to be boring i don't want to see it it's so old and so long ago and i remember really really enjoying it uh, it was really good did you know that actually it's the uh, first film to use the dolly zoom <laughs> wow that's a, I really hadn't heard yeah. that yes. that's amazing yes yeah. No, that's incredible. Yes, and uh, in in the classic film Free Enterprise from 1998, I believe, uh, Mark has the poster for Vertigo in his office. Nice. Ah, very good. Have, have you seen Free Enterprise? Nope. Oh, you gotta. It's got William yeah, Shatner a... in it playing himself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's classic. It's one of my favorites. Hang on, Paul. You haven't seen the Star Trek pastiche movie, and I have. Uh, How's that work? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, really good film, and it's one of the classics. You know, 1958, sort of, you know, that sort of era of films. There's there's not a lot of people 
sort of know about them anymore. And it's, it's... Yeah, and that's a great loss. It is. But again, the score to Vertigo is just a beautiful, sweeping. There's not a lot of it betrays itself a bit because if you sit and listen to the score for Vertigo, you'd think it'd be full of tension and really. And then there's bits, and then obviously there's there's moments of high strings and bits to get you back up. But mostly, it's a massively beautiful, romantic score. And that's one of the things I hear. Like, I struck me about the first time. The second thing was, and this is quite shallow, but uh, when I first watched it on Blu-ray, it's one of those films where it looks a bit like Mad Men. It looks like on Blu-ray. It looks like it's made now and just a really good period piece rather than an old movie. And that, that blows my mind still a bit with a really good print of a Blu-ray thing. I know this is from 1958, but it just it could have been made last week and, you know, yeah. kudos to the costume department type thing. But, uh, but no. It's, uh, no, it is very good. Looks, you actually really get good. to see it better than the guys who were sat in the theatre in 1958, which seems unfair. They made the effort, you know. So, <laughs> so uh, let's let's move on to uh, a, a, another film, which really, again, the star is the city, hmm. and it's 1971. And I'd like to see this on Blu-ray. I don't know. Have you got it on Blu-ray? Oh, God, we've not done that? Yeah. I thought, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll I, I know, I've, I've, I've only got it on DVD. So, um, I, but Blu-ray would probably bring this out really well. It's beautiful. It's um, yeah, the bright yellow. We, we, I don't know what film you're talking about, but the title, <laughs> it's bright yellow on Blu-ray. Um, we are talking about Dirty Harry. And we are talking, that probably this is the only film that would be in my top ten as well, from nice. your list. We have common ground? Come we on. have common ground in, in at, least, at least this one. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 1971, Dirty Harry, Andrew Robinson is a tour de force in this. I think he is, he, him and Clint Eastwood uh, are just, in my mind, two of the best actors I've, I've, I've ever mm. had the pleasure of watching. I love Clint Eastwood, I'm a big fan. But Andrew yeah. Robinson in this film is just a master, absolute master. He scared the crap terrifying. out of me. Viably terrifying as well. He acts with his eyes. You, you see this because mm-hmm. we, we all know him from, from uh, Garrick in Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. And in that you see his eyes. That's all you can see is his eyes yeah. you know, with, the, with the makeup that he had on and the, the, the mask that he had on. But, oh, my goodness, what an actor. And he, like I say, he does scare the living daylights oh, out of yeah. Um the scene where where he's got the kids on the coach, and he's kidnapped them, and he's taking you know, the driving on on the school bus, and they're driving away, yeah. and he's going around smacking them on the head, saying "sing, sing," and he's getting them to sing yeah. a song which I cannot hear. I do not wish to hear again in my life, <laughs> and I will not name because it, it is as soon as you I hear it, it scares. It. Yeah, it is <laughs> a very very uh, upsetting song for me because every time I hear it, it brings me back <laughs> to that scene, and it is so. I mean, I I would love to to speak to him and, and say or even some of the kids who who filmed that scene and say was yeah. it as scary as it looked because those kids bloody do a lot bloody well do a lot of acting as well <laughs> crying not just kids pretending to cry they are you yeah. know they're, they're giving it the beans they really are acting really well um which gives the scene a, a lot of its gravitas you know it, it makes it real um and the, you know the, obviously the school teachers you know scared as, as hell they're trying to drive and all that and it's just but I mean, I mean, this isn't my film. This is yours. So I mean, and you have done the best thing ever, and I am so jealous. And I want to do it myself. And that is to go to San Francisco and go oh, yeah. around the scenes. I did a checklist. Yeah, we had yeah. a picnic in front of the. Just my friend and my, myself, my friend Dave. In two thousand and one, we did a West Coast trip. We started off in San Francisco, ended up in San Diego, just drove the whole lot, and we had a few days in San Francisco. And we had uh, sandwiches on the lawn in front of the church. And I've never been so nervous and checked over my shoulder so often while I've been having my uh, my dinner as, as I did that day. But it's, uh, yeah, it's um, what was um, absolutely ballsy about Dirty Harry was it was going on whilst the Zodiac killings were happening. And rather than shying away from it, the writers thought, okay, we might as well uh, use a bit of this as inspiration. And rather than the Zodiac Killer, they took a little tiny leap and called their uh, their killer Scorpio. It's not a, it doesn't take a genius to work out who they're having a pop at there, does it really? And worse than that, and I know the I know the handwriting because I watch Zodiac and I've, I've read a lot about it. The uh, the note to uh, the mayor in Dirty House, even in the same script as the Zodiac Killer, the handwriting on the letter. 
and the handwriting on the stuff to the press from the Zodiac, they, they, they might have got him to do it. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you guys have seen Zodiac, the, the Fincher movie. That's a beautiful, yeah. terrifying movie yeah. about yeah. about those movies. And there's a there's a bit where um, S, um, Downey Jr. plays the... Uh, he, did he play one of the... Who played the cops? In, in, it doesn't matter. There's a point where they, they, they step out of... Uh, the movie, uh, Dirty Harry, and, and they look, they're quite disappointed and a bit crestfallen, and they just turned to each other and said, oh, "Work out okay for him." They got him, and then they went back to the desk the next day to try and find uh, try and find Zodiac. Everything about Dirty Harry was lovely, right through. Lovely wrong. It was just very good for me because it '71 uh, was a good year for cop movies. You had this, you had Shaft, you had um, French Connection. There's a there's a good triple header for. 1971. It was just, it was just, it, it was an action movie, but it wasn't afraid to be a police procedural either. He had all the, uh, the lines and the shooting and all the rest of the stunt work was brilliant. It was viable, but a lot of it was just desk work. It was trudging the streets. He was fed up and he was, uh, he, he became the, uh, the blueprint for, uh, a, a cop. He, he was a, he was a, he was a widowed, hard drinking, fed up guy married to the job. I mean, lethal weapon. He was, um, Riggs was a, a widowed cop whose wife was killed by a drunk driver and he was now married to the job and that's Callahan to, to the letter. I mean, they just took those traits and, uh, Die Hard with a car chase as well, Die Hard with a vengeance. It was, um, there was a scene in Dirty Harry towards the end where he's running around chasing down phone booths to try and get the next point and they used that entire sequence. And fair play, you can you can plagiarise or you can borrow, you can do whatever. As long as you make it entertaining in its own right and you put a spin on it, that's fine. There was a cracking sequence in Die Hard 3 with uh, Bruce Willis and Samuel Jackson tearing around New York trying to get the next port of call uh, to uh, Gruber's brother's bidding. And that's just lifted from Dirty Harry. Mm-hmm. And it just works just as well. It's just everything about it is just Clint Eastwood. It is. It's amazing. Right from the start... You know, the, mm. it, it just it starts with the you know, the close up of a sniper rifle, yeah, and then you're looking down the you know the scope and and you know this woman in the in the swimming pool, mm. and then you sort of it it takes a back shot from from there and you see you know the, in the distance the swimming pool and then the shot and then there's the shot and but all through this the titles are going on, mm-hmm. and then you see Callahan turn up you know at the scene and he you know looks at it looks around comes down the stairs, goes up to the next building and he crosses the cooling fans and it's and the, the music is is following the 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 action if you want to call it that mm. perfectly. You know, when Callahan yeah. appears it's all sort of dramatic and there's that haunting melody at the beginning where where you see the you know, Scorpio. And then, you know, he, he gets to the roof and he you know, he, he's looking around the roof and there's another fantastic shot in which you see the whole of, of San Francisco, well not the whole of San Francisco, yeah. you know, a big view of San Francisco in the distance. Yeah. And right in the middle is this tall building with the swimming pool on the top. Yeah. It just seems to be in the middle of like a flat area. But you're taking it from a, a skyscraper behind that, you know, which is, yeah. so you see this, I mean, and that's where, like I say, the city plays such a big part in it. Um, I, I just love the, the first sequence that you see then of, of, you see Dirty Harry that part, but you don't really know what he's about? Who is he? What is he? Is, mm. is he a rogue cop? You, you, we don't know. Until we then get to the part where he goes off to have a, a hot dog. Inspector Callahan. Jamie. Usual? Oh, the usual lunch, the usual dinner. Well, what difference does it make? Not much. Hey, Jaffe, uh, is that tan Ford still parked across the front of the bank? Tan Four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ten four. Engine running? <laughs> I don't know. How can I tell? Exhaust fumes coming out of the tailpipe. Ooh, that's awful. Look at that pollution. Yeah. Do me a favor, will you? Call this telephone number. <clears throat> Police department? Yeah, tell him Inspector Callahan thinks there's a 211 in progress at the bank. Got it? Got it. Be sure and tell him it's in progress, right? In progress. Yes, sir. 
Just wait till the cavalry arrives. Oh, shit. Turn around, <laughs> goes back out, gets his gun out, and all hell breaks loose, you know, typical yeah. Callahan fashion. And then you get the iconic. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth, in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But Ian, this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? <laughs> yeah, well, it's just, it is just superb. And I, every single scene in, in, in this film I love, you then get the... Why do they call you Dirty Harry? And oh, he hates everybody. And then he lists. I'm not going to list here because it's a, it's not a nice. You can't say these things these days. But he lists a load of you know derogatory terms for various people, and uh, which you know. But then winks. You know when he says what about Mexicans, and then he winks at the guy as he walks off, especially Mexicans. You know. So he's you know you he, he sort of say well yeah, generally he doesn't like those people, but on a one to one basis. If he likes you, he likes you. you know, he'll Got you back, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, it's just, it, it, it is, it is just about, I love it. I love that, the whole film. Well, talking about iconic lines, there's, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the naked gun, it, it, it's a chance for uh, taking something iconic and lampooning it. It could have taken the obvious, I saw it back to front, so when I saw Dirty Harry, this cracked me up, but uh, there's, uh, it could have gone for the six shots or only five, but there's actually a scene in um, The Naked Gun, and he uh, he gets picked up by the commission, and she says, "Drebin, I don't want any more trouble in the film industry like last week." And uh, he says, "Well, when I see uh, people dressed in strange costume, acting daft, and uh, running around causing chaos, I uh, I shoot the bastards. That's my policy." And um, he says, <laughs> they, they, "They they were actors. They were it was the Shakespeare in the Park. You killed five actors, good ones." And of course, it was Callahan saying. Uh, I won't go into the details of what Callahan was chasing down. They weren't actors, and they were, but to, to pick that slightly random left field chunk of dialogue and pick that to lampoon that cracked me up because uh, they never go the obvious route. Yeah. It's great. I mean, I mean, when I saw Dirty Harry, I wasn't in a particularly jovial mood, but when I saw that, I spat my drink all over the front <laughs> to my socks because I wasn't expecting it to be a drebinism, but which of course it wasn't. But by the time I saw it, it was. You know. But Andy Robinson is. His the look of him at the end where he says, "You know, did, did I fire six shots twenty five? Then he shoots him. Mm -hmm. That bit where he's you, you've got a close up shot of his face, and he's such an actor. He's so in depth mm -hmm. into that character. It must have been draining for him to be constantly that sort of manic and mad. And you know. and, and the scene in the uh, in the football stadium where he's getting yeah. stood on as well. That's um, oh, yeah. some work going on there when he's in absolute screaming agony as well. You know." And where they, they go up to the cross, and and you know at the beginning, and he and he's got the, the ski mask on, and you again you can really see his eyes, but even that's frightening, and his mouth, you know, and he stabs him in the leg, and, he goes, and the <laughs> scream that comes out of it's him, piercing, you know, oh, <laughs> proper little girl scream, isn't it? It is this big, yeah. imposing, scary man with uh, oh, crazy hair. Love it, absolutely love it. <laughs> Trivia question for you here: what What is the first word said in the film? Ooh. It's Callahan, isn't it, when he's surveying the scene? Yeah, I'll give you that. Ugh. I can't remember. He finds the note, and he, he sort of touches it with his pen to look at the note, and he goes... Yes, before he picks the shell case up. That's right, yeah, he's picked the shell case... No, he's picked the shell case up, and, okay. he's look, and he's looking around, and then he finds the note, and then he sort of looks at the note, he realises what it is. Jesus. That's yeah. the first word. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, get there. Well, even the, the preceding four sequels, they got lesser in quality. But I mean, Eastwood is such a guy. I mean, the fifth one only got made because Bird was a massive commercial failure. It's, it's a very good movie. It's Charlie Parker, but he only directed. He wasn't in it, but it crashed out and made a massive loss for Warner Brothers. So to make up for that, when they said, "Can you bring Callahan back for a fifth outing at the age of I don't know sixty four or something?" And he said, "Yeah, okay." And even that one. The Deadpool, it wasn't shocking, it wasn't very good, but it's a darn sight better than the first runs of a lot of action movies that came out at a similar time. And it was at this point we realised that the recording was dragging on a little bit too long, and there was no way we could condense this into one episode. Hence the reason this is part one of two parts. 
However, part two of this podcast will be episode 14. The reason for this is because we recorded an excellent episode with Casey from the Cult Vault podcast. It was all about conspiracy theories. And because it was such a good episode, and too good to miss, and also it means it would be episode 13, we decided to put that one out next. Lee will be back in episode 14, in two weeks' time, for the remaining five discs that Lee would take on a desert island, including his favourite film of all time. See if you can guess what it would be. So, our special is gone, and the grease in the box is cold, and we hope you are full to the brim. But what did we take away from today's episode? And, and none of those movies are in my top ten. <laughs> Never like you. Quite <laughs> <laughs> amiable on the outside, I knew there was something going on. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much again, Lee. My pleasure, guys. We've been your deliverers today. Please leave a tip at the door by subscribing for future deliveries. Rate and review our service, and we hope you come back for more helpings next time. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and TikTok by searching for the Cosmic Pizza Podcast. If you'd like to send us an MP3 file, you can email us on cosmicpizzapodcast at hotmail.com. And we'll catch you on the next episode of the Cosmic Pizza Podcast. <laughs>